Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are talking all about The Mandalorian, Chapter 19, The Convert, directed by Lee Isaac Chung. This episode was like a fever dream, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) There's always a couple in a Mandalorian season that are just like wacky or break the mold, I guess. And this is one of those. And I'm really excited to talk about it, actually, because I think there's a lot to dig into. After this episode ended, my brain was going a mile a minute, I guess. And I was, I don't know, I'm I'm very happy to be talking about it today. But first, we should talk about the fact that we have a celebration, Star Wars celebration, Net news stage date and time. And place. And place. Yeah. We are. If you're going to be in London for Star Wars Celebration, uh, we're going to be there too, (laughs) which I know we've (laughs) talked about before. But we are going to be on what is the equivalent of the podcast stage this year called the Holonet News Stage. And they finally, I guess, like officially confirmed all of the dates and times. We've been waiting to talk about it. But our date and time is Sunday, April 9th at 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, in room 14 for the Holonet News Stage. And there are different rooms for the Holonet News Stage. So it is important to know the room if you're interested in coming to our live show. So we are room 14. April 9th, 1 p.m. And we're super excited. It's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of numbers. <laughs> I mean, you guys know it'll be in the show notes on our social media pages, all those good places. Uh, but just go ahead and put it in your calendar now <laughs> while you're listening. That way you don't have to think about it later in the future. But if you're going to be at Celebration, we would absolutely love it if you came to our show. We are, this is like the, not the end, the beginning of the end of Celebration, I guess I would say, is our time slot. So I feel like there'll be some things to discuss. <laughs> yes. So I'm kind of excited <laughs> about that. The last couple of times we've had a live show at Celebration, we've been on the front end of the Celebration schedule, which has been good because I get we both do get so nervous before the live show that it's nice to kind of get it at the beginning. So I'm not thinking about it the whole weekend, but I'm excited uh, to see kind of what's revealed throughout the week that we'll be able to talk about during our live show. Yeah, me too. And uh, it's Easter Sunday, so that's <laughs> that's something. Yeah, that we <laughs> yeah. doing the show on that day. Anyway, so I'm I'm really uh, excited for this, and I think it'll be great. I can't wait to meet some of our European listeners. Mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot of you, so can't wait. And yeah, we're gonna be discussing everything that is probably discussed at the Lucasfilm Showcase on. Friday. So anyway. Yeah. You know, I actually just sent out a bunch of, we had an influx of international Patreon, patrons new on our Patreon uh, from Europe, one from Australia, but from Europe. And I just sent out their Patreon orders, uh, their sticker packets last week, the week before. And I was like, wow, I'm going to be there soon. And I don't know. I just thought it was kind of ironic that there was this group of international listeners that had just kind of joined our Patreon and I got to send them the little sticker packages. So, so soon before uh, we were headed over there too. Felt kind of nice. Yeah. Felt like a good sign. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to our trip. I It's coming up so fast. Yeah. And actually, Caitlin, we need to plan I, things <laughs> like obviously <laughs> offline, but I'm like, we need to plan our other days because I was like, we should probably get some reservations. Get some <laughs> like, things oh, going. Yeah, exactly. Pick where we're going to have our high tea. 
That's exactly what we I'm are. We are about. legitimately going to be having afternoon tea. tea. So <laughs> yes. Okay, we're here to talk about the Mandalorian, though. Great episode. Also, I have to say, I feel like I've never had more people tell me how much they love this season. So that's really cool. And if you're a new listener to Sky Talkers, I feel like we haven't seen said this in a long time. Um, welcome. We're really happy to have you here and to be listening to our Mandalorian recaps. Yes, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And I'm so excited to be digging into this episode because, like I said, I think this episode was a bit of a fever dream. Of course, I think I think anytime you go to Coruscant, it's a fever dream. <laughs> it's just kind of like that happens a lot. This is the only the second time in a year, but before that, it was uh, such Never. a huge break. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my um, I'm visiting my parents. I'm staying at my parents' house in Florida for a couple of weeks, and I have a friend who's down here with me, and she does not watch the Star Wars shows, but I was obviously watching Mandalorian, and you know, there's that scene where Doctor Pershing is traveling in the little galactic taxi and I was trying to explain why it was so cool to be on this planet <laughs> I was like well you see it's Coruscant which is like a big deal and we've seen it last year but like not that often <laughs> but it looks really good here and there's all these other things going on <laughs> she was like okay that sounds great and I was like yeah it really is it really is the first time we're seeing it in the new republic era it's important <laughs> it is it is and I don't know there's just something so magical. The, the air is different on Coruscant. I don't know what it is. And seeing it in live action just feels so great. But there was so much in this episode. I feel like I kept, my brain kept doing kind of somersaults about my, mm -hmm. you know, your feelings towards certain organizations, towards certain people, characters in the episode. There's a lot going on. So yeah, what what's happening in the beginning of this episode? Okay, well, this episode is sort of bookended by mm -hmm. Din and Bo's story, which I thought was a really good choice. I think we could have easily just had it be the Dr. Pershing episode, yeah. but having us check in with Din and Bo, I think, was a really good choice. Also, I I just feel like this season is really cooking along. We're doing a lot of things, mm -hmm. especially with Din and Bo. So I think Din's first words being, I am redeemed, and then Bo saying, saying I witnessed it versus like, rolling your eyes or anything about that. I thought that was quite interesting. And then also Bo basically taking stock of everything that Din knows and Din remembers. So she says, did, she, did you see anything? Um, did you see anything alive? I mean, she could have been a little less obvious about that, right? And clearly I mean, Din... It's Din she's talking to. She's <laughs> fine. <laughs> it's actually so true. But anyway, the the fact that she is like feeling advantageous about seeing the mythosaur, which sort of as she should, she feels a little slighted about the the Darksaber. And here she is thinking a little bit more about how she could potentially use her seeing the mythosaur to her advantage. I like how you say she's a little, what did you say? A little... Slighted? Uh, yeah, feeling slighted? Feeling, feeling slighted about the Darksaber yeah. is a very nice way to put it. In the beginning of the season, it felt like she was on a war path. I feel like she's softened a little bit. She's so, depressed. I, I have to say, I do feel like this show has paired Din and Bo together. And I don't, I really don't know if that means romantically, but I'm actually here for it. I'm here for the pairing. I can't wait to see where this goes. But what I want to say is that I think it really brings up the question of who is destined to tame the mythosaur. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode, but I don't think we mentioned enough that there's been a lot of foreshadowing of Din training 
animals. We saw him with the we saw him with the blurgs in the first episode of The Mandalorian. And even Queel is like, You're a Mandalorian. You're your kind road mythosaurs. You can train this blurg, basically. <laughs> and he does right away. And uh I thought that was, I don't know, that was right in the beginning of our series. So and then also, I guess we see Bobo with the Rancor. So we see other Mandalorians tame like huge beasts. We've talked about this a little bit in the last episode about like the alligator creature in the beginning of the first episode and how Din killed it. But I do think that there's something there about Din being like a fatherly figure, someone who is able to like, well, I don't know what the word is, but he he could potentially be the one to tame the Mythosaur. But at this point, I think it's clear that Bo wants that to be her because she thinks it's another maybe feather in her cap to ma- to basically unite the Mandalorians and maybe rule them in the way that she was hoping that would be done by her having the Darksaber, which clearly did not work out. I have another thought and I have another weird thing to say. And then because it's like, OK, so is it going to be Bo? Is it going to be Din who tames the Mythosaur? Because now the Mythosaur is there. It's like Chekhov's gun. Something's going to happen with that. Mm-hmm. Right. We've left in the mines and we know that we are going to go back but guys what if grogu tames the mythosaur i mean i think it's not out of reach to consider that because of his ability to use the force and also calm down beasts we've seen we saw that in book of boba fett and in the mandalorian too with the mud mudhorn which is his signet right Mm -hmm. so i I just sort of wonder if this is going to be Grogu's moment and then Mando has the Darksaber and then Grogu tamed the Mythosaur and Bo is left with nothing. Oh, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know it is an oh, no situation because I'm starting to really like, not that I didn't like her before. I really do like her. I really like her character. But in a lot of ways, I am also rooting for Bo. What do you think? Yeah, I think that it's super interesting to think about, you know, where does all of this lead? Because all of these possibilities that you're talking about with Bo and Din and Grogu, they're all very viable possibilities. I can very easily see a situation where Bo tames the Mythosaur, unites Mandalore again. You know, I can see a world where Din does it. And it. I can very much see a world where Grogu does it as well. I think the question I'm, I'm left with right now is, is Grogu, not, Grogu old enough to do it now? Because Bo, I feel like, is thinking very short term here. No, not short term, but just shorter term than Grogu because she's not going to be 900 years old. You know what I mean? Like she's ready to do this now. And I think that that kind of pairs with where we see the end of the episode go when she is accepted by the armorer, which you and I were kind of talking about this off air before we started recording felt like such a, Oh, they were just like, yeah, come chill with us whenever, however you long you want. We're here for you, babe. And I was super surprised that one that happened and that I think Bo herself was caught off guard, but I can see the wheels turning the proverbial wheels turning behind her helmet of this could actually work out pretty good for me. You know what I mean? When it comes to her longer goals, which I do, as you were saying, Charlotte, do include the Mythosaur and using that as her hook to unite Mandalore because I don't, she's not going to kill Din for the Darksaber. And so I think that kind of rules that out. But now that there's this other avenue, something that is older, more mythic to Mandalore, the fact that they can actually go back to Mandalore, I think it makes sense for her to start seeing how she can gain allies and Mm -hmm. to just kind of be 
blindly welcomed into this group to be considered one of them until the day she chooses not to uh, is is really kind of setting her up for success as a weird way to put it uh, because we've seen the lengths that these Mandalorians will go through for people that, you know, walk the way of the creed. I mean, all the way back in season one when without a second thought, they all came out to save Grogu and many of them died and they had to completely relocate. You know, all of that happened. So I think this is a very interesting turn of events to have Bo and Din on the same path, the same creed. And again, I'm just going to keep bringing it up because I'm kind of obsessed with it. But the way that Katie Sackoff described Din and Bo's relationship this year, when we got the chance to interview her, she said Din was a distraction and a nuisance. And I think we've kind of seen that played out so far in the first half of the season. And I wonder if that is still applicable uh, in the next half, as I think Bo kind of starts to move the chess pieces uh, towards uniting Mandalore through the Mythosaur. Yeah, I think it's interesting because Bo has spoken about how she finds such fault in the fact that mm -hmm. there's so many different Mandalorian sects and she wants to unite them and people are scattered and she hates that, right? So here she has an opportunity, like you pointed out, of her infiltrating one of those sects, right, and becoming part of them, gaining their trust, like you said. Um, in a lot of ways, what was really effective about the storytelling choice to like I said, bookend this story between the Dr. Pershing story is this parallels a little bit or it could parallel. It could parallel what is happening with Dr. Pershing and Aliyah Kane with the fact that Aliyah has given her has become part of this group of people who have amnesty, who are experiencing re rehabilitation, who are given a second chance after the empire. And instead she sort of predictably, even though I was really rooting for their friendship, predictably turns on Dr. Pershing. Oh man, I was so back and forth. I was I like, yeah, that, that's kind of the point yeah, of it, right? No, yes, yeah. no. <laughs> I was exactly. shocked though by the end. <laughs> Yes, it, I, I, they really like put us through the ringer with that because mm -hmm. I was also back and forth. But by the end of it, you're like, well, I guess that was always supposed to happen. Sure. <laughs> um, anyway, the the thing is, is I think that there is a parallel that's happening here. There's a potential foreshadowing that's happening about how maybe Din and and Bo's story will go, or is it a warning for how we think it might go, and then it'll they'll turn it on its head for us or something like that, you know. Something to further extend that parallel, we have two characters who are receiving redemption, Dr. Pershing and Din Djarin. And this episode literally begins with I am redeemed. And instead, uh, Dr. Pershing is also living in, in the amnesty program, experiencing re rehabilitation and is on a path of redemption. His path of redemption gets completely overthrown and uh, doesn't get to experience that sort of good life that he really wanted to afterwards because he gets corrupted. So what happens, how does that parallel what could potentially happen with Din? Um, and I think that's something that we're going to be exploring. If if we don't, I feel like this is a warning for how things could potentially turn out. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to kind of think through all the layers here because, right, Dr. Pershing is on this 
I think it's a really good, uh, you know, the way that this episode is set up that, you know, Din is redeemed, uh, Dr. Pershing is redeemed, and, you know, Bo is redeemed too. I think the use of the word bathe, our, our definition of bathe is so funny to me because, I mean, yeah, I guess they went in and out of the water, but <laughs> it was a bit intense of a situation. And Bo, of course, wasn't uh, trying to be redeemed by the way of the creed. You know what I mean? So I find it interesting that there, you know, is such absolutism with uh, the Mandalorians about, you know, using the living mind, the water of the living minds. But, you know, Din never finished the the ritual ceremony and Bo never intended to do it in the first place. But it still, quote unquote, counts for them. But really, sorry, and I kind of got a little bit on that train. But this comparison between Din and Dr. Pershing, I think, is a really good one because Dr. Pershing is on this path of redemption. And you're right, Charlotte, it, it gets corrupted along the way. But that path laid out by the amnesty program, I think we see a lot of examples throughout this episode that it's also not all it's chalked up to be. Even if Dr. Pershing had gone through all the steps perfectly, if he had become this notable, um, what's the word, uh, credit, this success story within the amnesty program, uh, the, the episode gives us a lot of clues that, you know, there are still some things that are very clear takeaways from the empire that are still, or remnants, I guess I should say, uh, within the amnesty program. The fact, we'll, we'll talk about it later or maybe now, but the fact that we have the mind flare technology, the fact that people are still referred to by their numbers rather than names, this was such a kind of shocking revelation to me when they get to the amnesty program housing and everyone is referring to each other by number. Uh, this seems just so, such a hallmark of the empire to think that the New Republic was also using that was a really big red flag. I mean, there are a lot of flags in this episode, <laughs> a lot of red flags, but that was such a big one for me personally. I don't know why. I mean, I do know why, but in lieu of other things, that was such a big red flag. So I think we are kind of questioning in both of these organizations, both of these stories of what is redemption? What does it mean? When does it count? And what does the path to redemption look like? Is it a good path? Is it a path we should even be on? Um, we've had a lot of thoughts about the path that Din is on as it relates to his redemption and his adherence to the creed. And I think we were all kind of asking those same questions with Dr. Pershing too, or rather with the amnesty program in general um, about the way that they're kind of running things in the in the era of the New Republic. So I don't know. It was a bit of a ramble. It, it's given me a lot to think about, though. Totally. And before we just move on to talking fully about the Dr. Pershing story, I really need think we need to talk about Bo's home being destroyed. Mm. Yes, the whole dogfight was like very dogfighty. I think you wrote that in the, in the notes and I laughed because I totally agree. But Bo's home was destroyed. That took me off guard. I was really surprised by that. Also, mm -hmm. I was just really sad because I loved that set piece. <laughs> yeah. It was, I, ugh, I, we got rid of the throne. Like, no, no, maybe there's still ruins and that would be awesome. But anyway, we should take a pause and think about what Bo's home being destroyed represents for her story. And I think it is easy for us to make the leap that Bo is potentially on her own hero's journey because her home has now been destroyed. Um, and it reminds us of when Luke's home was destroyed in A New Hope and then he goes on his journey and his entire, basically his entire world begins, right? So I think you can look at her home being destroyed and 
think about, okay, so what is this kick starting for her? Where are we going with her story? And does this mean that she is on a hero's journey? Does this mean that she is not? Is it a red herring? I don't think it is. I really do think that Din, that Bo is now a huge part of the story and like a co-lead with Pedro Pascal at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's worth it to consider what does this mean for her? Because now she is on a different adventure with a new Mandalorian creed by the end of this episode. And we don't see her face, obviously, at the end, but with the way that the camera zooms in on her, she literally accidentally joined this, but maybe it's for the better, maybe it's for the worse, maybe it'll get her to her goals. We are just left to think about what that mask is representing and what is underneath that mask. But her her home being destroyed is a big deal <laughs> and it should it's a should be a big part of her story. Yeah. Well, you know, Bo is no stranger to loss and this is kind of the last thing that she has, I think, uh, is her home and now it's gone. And so what else is there but to try and get back anything, you know, kind of clinging to anything that you can. And this is the Mythosaur feels like the last hurrah. But I agree. She's totally a second lead now. And uh, where will Din and Bo's journey end, uh, whether this season or the Mandalorian series as a whole? It's kind of crazy how there are just so many options, (laughs) basically, for how this could go when it comes to you know, returning to Mandalore formally or rebuilding Mandalore, I guess I should say. Rebuilding Mandalore. Yes. Okay. So let's dive into the Coruscant part. I know you've already talked about it a little bit, but it was crazy to see Coruscant again and seeing the opera house and the, the citizens of Coruscant. I think that this show did a pretty good job of getting us back into this world. One thing I really like about The Mandalorian is that you can watch this as a really casual Star Wars fan or someone who just has like a you know small amount of knowledge about Star Wars and you can get a sense of like what Coruscant represents to the story. It's a capital. It is uh, far removed from the Outer Rim and any sort of struggles and I feel like you definitely felt that in this episode when Pershing is basically adored by all of those citizens of Coruscant who also say like who get confused between the New Republic and the Empire. I mean, you can't you can't get confused about that. It's different. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a good reminder, right, that I think people like us who are so in, you know, into Star Wars, to, to put it lightly, we watch a scene like that and it's like, oh, so obvious what they're hinting at because this is a scene we've seen a couple times, right? It's a, ha- a callback to some scenes we saw in Andor. Of course, I'm thinking of Canto Bight and The Last Jedi. Like These are things we've seen before of the rich and wealthy having no kind of concept of reality or even really caring about the government that is in control because they keep profiting anyway. But there are so many people that come into Star Wars at different points, right? The entry point, your entry point into Star Wars. And if this is your only entry point into Star Wars is the Mandalorian, the only thing you're kind of caring to keep up with right now. And I think there are a lot of people that only watch The Mandalorian in the general public, you know, the locals. <laughs> and I think it's important to continue to include these kinds of scenes, not only for us as deep fans to know that this is, you know, across the board, how the wealthy are acting in the Star Wars world. But as someone who doesn't have any kind of other knowledge, maybe isn't even really sure where we are in the timeline episode to episode, <laughs> but to have a scene like this to kind of connect that dot or to um, have Star Wars as a story 
story emphasize this point about the elite class within the series specifically, I think is still really important for them to do. And I'm glad that we had this scene. And also I'm glad because it was great to see all the costumes and that piece was fun. And so many... Mon yeah, sorry. I was like, I kept wanting to say Admiral <laughs> Akbar, and I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Admiral Akbar clones. There's so many of them. So many. So many Mon Calamari in this episode. It was fantastic. But the one thing I want to comment on from this little section here is Dr. Pershing talking about his work and basically being this poster child for the amnesty program and him saying, you know, talking about his cloning work. And he talks about how they wanted to combine multiple strands that incorporated the best genetic attributes of multiple donors. And guys, if this isn't what we've been talking about, especially in regards to the Bad Batch and Omega, uh, I don't know what is. This kind of confirms so many things. And I just love that the topic of cloning has been, is being so explored in the past couple of years in the Star Wars world. It's so layered too. It's so layered. And, you know, if you're not watching The Bad Batch, I absolutely think you should be because it is an incredible show. But so I guess slight spoilers or I guess information about the show. I don't know. But <laughs> Omega is... I mean, the show's about clones. The show's so. about clones. Omega is a tiny clone, a, a little girl clone. I don't know how old she is, 10, 12. And essentially, I think that the Empire would ultimately want to create a Force-sensitive clone that they could control. Similar to the clone army with Order 66, the um, the chips in their brain about, you know, controlling them. And to have a Force-sensitive clone would be the ultimate goal, I think, for the Empire. Knowing that, you know, at the end of the Skywalker saga and the Rise of Skywalker, we find out that Palpatine, there's clones there, Snoke is a clone, like all of this is lining up. And so to hear Dr. Pershing here say, combining multiple strands that incorporated the best genetic attributes, knowing that they've done testing on Grogu, who is Force-sensitive of what perhaps some people consider the most Force-sensitive species in the Yoda species. We don't know that, but I think... I think that could be a, a, a fair speculation. Um, I don't know. It just feels super important. And I was like, wow, wow, he said it. He said it. Can we laugh at that concept of potentially the Snoke clone, which is a clone of Palpatine being an exploration of the best genetic <laughs> attributes? And they like really screwed it up. They put that guy in a jar. They were like, forget it. This is not right. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to go too deep in that, but the whole thing was very Mr. DNA in, in Jurassic Park, uh, filling in the holes in the code. I don't know if it's just me here, but I have to wonder by the end when Pershing's brain gets wiped by the mind flare, what is the point? Like, why are we doing I... this? Because, because it feels like she has a motive and the motive was to wipe him from existence, right? For all intents and purposes without killing him. So, wipe his research, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And like that drive to do good for that research. So if they already have that technology or they've taken that technology in Pershing's own research, is it just bad to have him be an advocate to shine a light onto that research and how that was used for... He said that, he, his, he said that his work was twisted into something terrible, but he assures you that his original intentions were good and that entire narrative maybe is something that the quasi-empire who's still around today doesn't want to be around. But I just think there's a lot of things, 
Like, why did she erase his brain beyond saving her own skin, which I think is part of it. But then also, what what is she protecting? It it felt like a setup. Yeah. You know, not that she, because it seemed like they knew she was going to be there and that she was like a test, you know, that she kind of poses it as a test for Pershing to the New Republic. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she's like, well, he failed it. I don't know. It's yeah. the the whole implication, you know, that Pershing goes through. I think this is the thing, right? That Dr. Pershing gives this story um, at the opera house. It's something he reiterates to Aliyah, which, by the way, I'm so glad to have her back. <laughs> I love the concept of these two characters who were good side characters who everyone was always intrigued by. Right. And then it was oh, we'll put them together in this great story. Like, yeah. whose genius idea was this? John Favreau's. But I feel like it <laughs> was a great one. Yeah. It, <laughs> it was so it worked out so well. It was so good. Um, but Dr. Pershing gives this story about his mother and how if she was a doctor and if only there had been this technology to save her, you know, there'd be no more needless losses. And that, I think, is is genuine and is good. But then the whole – what we're seeing in this episode is that – you know, it was it was put in the wrong hands. His original intentions were good, but they were twisted. And does that mean that part of Dr. Pershing, like if he were to continue this science, this research, this science, uh, this research, w- could he eventually be twisted? And he even says that, you know, the empire used it for bad, but the New Republic, they would totally use it for good, right? Like they're the good guys. But We've seen the New Republic kind of do not so good things within this episode itself. And, you know, to bring it back to that wealthy, the elite conversation that he has in the opera house, those people that are would probably be putting money into that kind of research, I wouldn't say they're good people. They don't care who's using the technology. Um, they don't even know who's in charge. Is it the Empire? Is it the Cogwheels? You know, is it the New Republic? Who knows and who cares? Um, so what's to say that that technology wouldn't be used for ill? And we know that the First Order is coming, so it would just be carried over. So in some ways, to see the New Republic kind of systematically supposedly systematically destroying Empire Imperial technology is almost like I'm kind of for it, but it's but then we also know that they're really not doing that because they have the mind flare technology that they've retrofitted. So why was it okay to uh, you know, reuse that technology, but not something that Dr. Pershing was working on that could be used for medical good, uh, you know, for cloning organs and things like that. Um, it's just they retrofitted it, but they can still blow someone's brain. Yeah, out exactly. With that it. option is still yeah. there. You know, so mm-hmm. <laughs> it's is it is it better that the not obviously i'm not saying it's good that dr pershing's mind was wiped but is it better for all of this technology to have just been destroyed i think that's the question they're asking here and i don't know the answer actually um but knowing you know as a star wars fan what's coming down the line i'm like well i don't know (laughs) i don't know if i want this out there because i know who's who's actually going to be in power someday uh very soon very shortly but it's I don't know. I think this episode was super interesting and kind of thinking about all the layers of these organizations and politics and and everyone's motivations, too. I think even having this comparison between like Bo and uh, Alaya is a good one to have, too, because um, I think Bo's seem are more clear because obviously we've had more time with her. But I think, you know, on first watch, like I said, her joining Din and the Armorer, I was kind of like, whoa, okay, all right, she's going there. But then Alaya is such 
a question mark for me. Like you, your point of what's why are we destroying this research? Or Dr. Mm-hmm. Pershing's memories and and what he knows and everything like that. What is her ultimate goal here? Is she like a sleeper agent essentially? It kind of feels like that. It does feel like that. It feels like she is beside Gideon wherever the heck he is, right? That was put up for questioning in this episode about what happened to Gideon. Did Was his mind mind flayed? Where did, there was all these different questions and sort of rumors that were swelling around Gideon. So at the end, is she going to be the person that leads us to Gideon? Is she part of the big bad? I think ultimately, though, what I get from this episode is that Dr. Pershing was denied redemption. He thought he had it and he was denied it based off of a sleeper agent, someone who had the power and he didn't realize that they had the power. But is it even redemption if – take a lie out of it. Is it redemption if the New Republic was just going to fix his brain? That's a good question. I And one that I feel like we haven't explored a lot in other redemption stories in Star Wars. Yeah. Because we, we right, we talk about personal choice here. Exactly. So it kind of, it really does take away the personal choice. I guess when I say redemption, I really mean the beginning of the episode, the amnesty yeah. housing, the entire infrastructure that was set up for that, which I think is just really interesting. And I was like, wow, I'm so glad that they have this program. Yeah. Um, and of course it's being misused. Like, yeah. of course it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still, I was like, oh, okay, so this probably isn't going to work out the way that I think it's going to. And <laughs> <laughs> here we are. He is denied any sort of assistance, any sort of help from uh, the structure that deems themselves to be the good guys yeah. because of an individual's actions. Yeah. And that individual is a liar. Yeah. So for me, I'm like, okay, so how does this relate to Din? If this story is about the Mandalorian, how does this relate to Din. Of course, it is setting up a bigger picture, definitely continue to sow the seeds of the cloning technology like we've talked about. But then it also is like, okay, so Din now is in an organization in which he was granted redemption, right? He did it himself and he was accepted by his group. Sunk so who's like going to be this... Yes. So he did. He really sunk like a rock. We didn't really cover that in the last episode. And I don't think I realized that he just... Me neither. The best card doesn't I float. That he, I really thought that the mythosaur like disrupted him. Me too. But no, you know, he sunk. I love that. <laughs> so funny. It's just so... It like, sometimes he's clumsy. How deep it was. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's so great. He really admitted it too. I don't think I would have. Um, anyway. <laughs> Anyway, so basically, if we want to do the one-to-one parallel, who is the sleeper agent within the redeemed group who will disrupt Din's own redemption? And and is it Bo? Is Aliyah the Bo one-to-one? Yeah, I don't know. Because we've also talked about the armorer as potentially... Yeah, it could could be the armorer too. Villainous, quote-unquote, whatever that could mean for her or for uh, her group of Mandalorians. I don't know. Because what happens... All right, let, let's play this out. What happens if Bo ingratiates herself to all these Mandalorians, tells them about the Mythosaur, she's like, I'm going to do it, and and they all agree they're going to follow Bo, and she's going to rule Mandalore. What happens when they do that? And then she's like, great, got it, takes off her helmet. I mean, it's done. She's like, all I'm right, gonna, I'm I would leaving. Like to see it. I'm leaving now. And they're like, we just, <laughs> we just helped you get all this, and now you're going to like leave the creed the way? What? Well, if she tames the mythosaur, then she would be more connected to the ancient, you know, songs of whatever's past of Mandalore. <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> she's more connected to that than their creed was if she's able to tame the myth or it is out. it could be i'm not saying that it would be yeah. but it could be that she's like we don't have to live like this this is the like the new way this is the new way you know oh, she creates a new way i mean that would be to me that would be the ideal is figuring out how what is the next step like what is the new way how do you connect everything together not just this small creed where Din and Bo are right now with the armor, but like all the other ones too. I think you're right. Like de- defining the new way, right? Of course, I'm thinking of our of the sequel trilogy and defining a new way of what it is to be a Jedi, or rather a Force user. That I think kind of fell a little bit by the wayside by the end of the sequel trilogy of of really kind of getting to that next step of okay, we've gone through all of this. What is next as far as how do we take our next steps into the future of using understanding the light side and the dark side and the ways that we use the force as force users, whether a Jedi or something else. So I think to hopefully see this carried through with the Mandalorians of this is the new way, I think would be really great. And I think what you and I have kind of been talking about for the past couple of years, I don't know if we've actually defined it as the new way, (laughs) but that feels kind of right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's go back to Coruscant. We got to go back to Coruscant. Um, there's like a lot of things that I feel like we need to comment on. Okay. <laughs> Number one, the fair, the little fair that oh they go God. to. Um, so great. Number one, Ralph McQuarrie concept art come to life. We love to see it. Mm-hmm. Number two, seeing the peak of what's it called? Yeah, I don't right have it down. in the notes, the mountain. but it's from the High Republic. And I loved that. More of bringing book canon onto screen, please. And that Mandalorian has done that in the past with Timothy Oliphant's character and things like that. But this was great. I really loved this. I re- there was like a lot of like fun little food in this. I want to try that little biscuit. My mom texted me and was like, where do we, how do we make the little biscuits? And I was like, yes, good, good <laughs> question. They actually look like something that we would get on the Galactic Star Cruiser. And I felt like his room also looked like the room of the Galactic Starkers. I don't know what that says, but it really had the same vibe. And the tour guide droid thing that was talking to him when he was in bed wearing the pajamas, which were excellent, by the way, it reminded me of the Galactic Star Cruiser and the way that the little droid in the room kind of talks to you about your day and what you want to explore. And then also the music in this scene right away, it was definitely exactly like the Epcot music when you walk into Epcot, but then they played a diegetic version of March of the Resistance, which was, wow. Wow, wow. This is like, I have no idea what this means. The choice of March of the Resistance, (laughs) which I put in our notes as March of the Resistance County Fair remix. Yes. (laughs) I'm so intrigued by this choice specifically. To do. It's not the first time it's appeared in The Mandalorian, by the way. It has it, been w- woven in from um, whenever the X-Wing pilots, like the Dave Filoni of it all, have appeared. Okay. It so, makes sense for it to appear with them. Mm-hmm. Because, well, but even then, it's like, we're not there yet. Is the resistance even a thing at this stage? <laughs> I, it's just, it's so, I, I guess it kind it's of. It's a choice. It's a choice, and I'm so intrigued by it. And... 
Yeah. The first time I listened, I was watching the episode. I I did not get up early enough. I literally had 59 minutes between when I started the episode and uh, my first meeting of the day for work. <laughs> and so there was no wiggle room to go back and re-listen. So the first time I was listening through, I was like, am I hearing the Imperial March? I was like, that would be so interesting to hear the Imperial March in this, like again, the County Fair remix of it all uh, in this you know, New Republic era of, you know, sinister organization is still lurking and the remnants of it are still here. But the March of the Resistance is like the other side of that, which I also find as intriguing. And anyway, I loved the fair, the inclusion of the mountain. It was it was very cool. It was a very cool thing to see. And uh, even something that's kind of been commented on as recently as Tales of the Jedi, when Dooku was talking about that tree at the Jedi Temple and how Qui-Gon loved it so much because nature and nature doesn't really exist on Coruscant. I thought it was great. A great inclusion. The thing that I need to say here is we've got days of the week in Star Wars and one of them is Bendu Day. What does it all mean? I I was like, oh my God. I, okay. Charlotte mentioned if we have new listeners for The Mandalorian, uh, you know, welcome and Which welcome. Which we do. We do. We do. Welcome. Yeah. One thing you should know about me and Charlotte is that uh, we really like weird force stuff. And the Bendu from Rebels, the animated show Rebels, is one of our personal favorites. And an incredible, weird character creature, I don't even know, entity of the force that is called the Bendu. The fact that we have a day called Bendu Day. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like Thursday, Thor's Day, but just like, <laughs> you know, Bendu is like a mythic like creature who you only hear about in stories, but now he's part of the days of the week, or has he always been part of the days of the week? I think I mean who decided this? Right. We were talking about this in our Discord for our Patreon. And uh, a lot of people were talking about how it's very similar to, you know, our days of the week are named, you know, originate from a lot of Greek and Roman mythic figures, like the gods, and that this is probably the same thing, but it's something that so much time has passed, especially in the New Republic era, that no one probably actually knows anything about Bendu or where that came from. And I just love that this very much feels like a Dave Filoni insert here of it would make sense to have a day of the week named after the Bendu. Like maybe one of the other days of the week is some like a play on Mortis or something like that, because the the father, son <laughs> and daughter on Mortis kind of play into this uh understanding this mythic level of the force that the Bendu does as well. And, you know, I had put on my Twitter today, actually, we're recording this on March 16th, that Bendu felt like, Bendu Day felt like a Thursday. And someone commented and said, well, I kind of thought it would be a Wednesday because the Bendu kind of stands in the middle. Uh, and Wednesday is the middle of the week. And I got to say that that makes a lot of sense. And I think I Not to, to Europeans, FYI. Okay. Europeans, it would be Thursday. <laughs> But all right, I'm in I, America. I do. Sorry. <laughs> I do agree, though. Like the work week, Monday through Friday, like it's clearly Wednesday. Yeah, it's the middle of the week. The Bendu, so. again, if you don't know, the Bendu famously says that he is neither light nor dark, uh, but that they stand in the middle of all things. That they are all light and all dark too. It's 
It's incredible. Um, so good. It's so good. The conversations <laughs> the Bendu has with the characters of Rebels. Uh, and even, you know, we've kind of been talking about this, about these little things that feel like they're being seeded for the Ahsoka show uh, to have the Bendu thrown in here. The yes. Bendu never communicated with Ahsoka, but we do have a... Well, we have a scene (laughs) that Dave Filoni wrote for the Bendu and Ahsoka that he posted on Twitter years ago that it's a long scene. It's not a short one. It is a long scene. It's unclear to me if it was ever animated or like seriously put into a storyboard. Um, All that to say is that Dave Filoni has thought about what the Bendu and Ahsoka would talk about. And I don't know, you know, just kind of thinking big picture here. But anyway, I was so thrilled (laughs) to see that Bendu has a day, whether it's Wednesday or Thursday. And happy Bendu day. Yeah. Happy Bendu day. Um, I loved this. I loved the world building that was happening, I guess, on Coruscant. Yeah. This and also the comparisons that you're able to make with Andor, the even... I've seen some people make some like unfair comparisons to Andor and I'm not here to do that, but I'm here to say that we've seen two characters now work like office jobs that are so mundane. More cubicles. On Coruscant. In cubicles that are just like sucking the life out of them, you know, and are inspiring them to do other things. And it's not a rare concept. (laughs) Like this is pretty uh, standard, I guess. But um, (laughs) I think now we've seen that and... I just really enjoyed the fair. I loved the amnesty housing. I loved the little droid that was the tour guide droid through Coruscant. I wanted to make a trip itinerary. I wanted to go to Coruscant. I wanted to explore it all. I liked the fact that we saw the New Republic um, rebel insignia with the stars around it on top of a building that really indicated like the passage of time, but not too much. I think that's very clear because they're flags. Yes, they're just flags, but like, I think the thing about seeing a new Republic Coruscant, our brains might go like, oh my God, I wonder how much it's changed since the, since the Empire. But those characters outside the Opera House ve- made it very clear that they don't really think that much has changed. Like their, their physicalities around them haven't really changed that much. And so mm-hmm. all that changed that we can see is a flag, you know? Yeah. Um, that said, I do think the technology is like brighter, more chipper, like even the droids being blue and having this, you know, very jovial voice, I think, uh, says something, well, you know, it, it, but it's also in part of facade. And yes, I think we really it is. see that. But, Go ahead. I'm sorry. It is a facade. But is it really? Because well, yeah. I think we it's a slippery slope when you get on this like everything is bad all government is bad type situation yeah because I don't I don't subscribe to that I don't believe in it I don't think that it is the same as the empire I think it's not and I think that when we see that those you know elite people talking about how it's the same as it ever was you roll your eyes because it's so not on these outer rim territories in these other planets like maybe on Coruscant where everything is big business that like really nothing physically has changed, but things are physically changing elsewhere. And I think that, yeah, we are supposed to consider that there is a facade element, but it's not all a facade. The New Republic is the right way. Down with the Empire is is also the right <laughs> way, you know? And I think 
I think that there are flaws and you can you can fix those flaws, but I just think it's a slippery slope when we start saying that everything is the same. Well, you it's know? funny because when I was watching this episode the first time, I was like, is Star Wars now saying that anarchy is the way to go, that <laughs> no government <laughs> I mean, is the way to go? I think it's always been saying that, but like whatever. The, the first uh, – a new hope said that yeah am I wrong (laughs) yeah it's I think I think you're right right like and that's the the real worldness of it too of like countries that are not paying attention to what's going on that are only ruled by business right and not paying attention to what's going on around the world and other places and things like that but I think that this concept of the facade is is true. But then to your point, it's also not true. Like this is not the empire. The empire was terrible. It's awful. Right. (laughs) But it got so eerie, I think at the end when, you know, Pershing is hooked up on the mind flyer flayer and we have the Mon Cala doctor there and he's so chipper and the music behind it is very reminiscent of the fair music I think of that almost like a fun house a little bit um very subtle I thought and he's like don't worry son it's you know person is like you're gonna wipe my mind he says absolutely not this is not the empire son and his tone of voice is so like a little like he's been brainwashed. I think that was kind of the vibe I got from some people uh, and even like the way the tone of the droids a little bit. Yeah. Of, yeah. It's just a little too sugar-coated. And the, it's chipper. Exactly. Chipper is a good way to describe it. And it's, you know, have even the way that the droid, the taxi droid was giving Pershing, you know, all of his recommendations of you should go here, you should go here, go see this exhibit, da 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 da, da. And it just felt so... Yeah, chipper to uh, to like a Stepford Wives kind of extent. <laughs> but at the same time, like it's also true that the New Republic is better, much better than the Empire. Mm-hmm. And we have to think, right, Leia is in charge right now, right? Or there's a lot of people in charge. But, you know, Leia is there's part a of, of this government. Mon Mothma is. Exactly. Um, yeah. But thinking about our our big players from the Skywalker saga. Like Leia is a part of this rebirth of the new Republic. And I trust Leia inherently. I trust my Mothma inherently. Uh, So thinking about those things and the things that they're trying to implement and the idea of trying to change a government, a galaxy that has been so corrupted. For so long. Yeah. For so long. Is it really that long? Um, (laughs) <laughs> Big picture. I mean, you got to imagine these people, some of these people in the galaxy have really been through the ringer. <laughs> it has been so long because Palpatine has been pulling the strings for so long. That's true. Yes, That's it true. has been so long. That's true. Thinking about, you know, the name of who's technically in charge, but mm-hmm. you're right. Palpatine has really been there for the whole time. But yeah, so I don't know. Um, the end was so eerie with so the eerie. doctor and Pershing and then Alaya and that other, uh, the Twi'lek doctor who was there too of you know for every failure it's good to remember there's a success like you and just wow and knowing the truth that dr pershing's intentions probably were good Mm -hmm. at one point and maybe still were even even with the risk that his research could fall into the wrong hands again uh he did have i think the show wants you to empathize with him but then yeah. Elia oh, is the one there who is being called the success and we don't even know 
what her true motivations are or really where she's leading us, I think. I did want to say one thing I wanted to comment on that we haven't commented on is the scene where Dr. Pershing gets back to Amnesty Housing and all those other people are there having a drink and they're all talking about the things that they miss from the Empire. And Pershing is like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I don't miss anything. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, no. Like, like little things. Obviously not the Empire. <laughs> but I loved that scene because it really reminded me of something we talked a lot about with the show Resistance and how I think Resistance was an animated show for two seasons. It was a great show. And Resistance did a really good job, you and I both thought, of talking about the regular people who were brought into these wars and kind of forced to have a job to make money that involved working for the empire and did that make that person a bad person i thought resistance did a really good job of kind of queuing up that conversation with some of its characters and it really reminded me i thought about it in this scene with these other people who had been in the empire and we're we're genuinely just trying to be better and to mm -hmm. now do the right thing. And I think that even when Aliyah says that was telling Pershing that she trained in the Academy uh, for the Empire on Coruscant and she says something like, I really thought we were doing good. I think I believed her. And mm -hmm. does she still think that what she's doing is good, whatever that big picture is that she's leading us to? I think she does. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know. I I need more before I can make that assessment. But yeah, it was so eerie. Also, the music in that scene was really otherworldly and spacey. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, where am I? It was a little – you called this episode a little bit of a fever dream. I felt like I was in a fever dream in that, in that part of this episode. Yeah. It was so much. Overall, though, I really did love this episode. And I thought – it was a really fun one. There was a lot to dig into. And I feel like we didn't really cover everything that we wanted to cover in this. <laughs> like there's a yeah. lot more to talk about. And I, th again, this is one of those episodes that once we see the big picture of the season, it'll make a little bit more sense. Not that it didn't make sense, but it, I feel like we'll be able to contextualize it so much better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. It'll be a good one to come back to, especially looking at The Mandalorian as a whole, as a series, once we put it on the shelf. Yeah. Absolutely. Once we put it on the shelf. <laughs> I also, something that's interesting is with this season, I feel like I can't predict where we're going next. And mm -hmm. I really love that. Yeah. It's very fun. And I mean, I could say that I think that Din and Bo, I mean, I think I can predictably say that Din and Bo are going to like figure out what it is like to actually be in this organization of the Mandalorian Creed, right? Because we actually really haven't seen that. We've seen Din come and go. So we've never really seen them maybe stay put in this group. So yeah. that'll bring out some interesting things, Dynamics. I guess. And maybe, yes. And we can we can call back on the conversation that we had about the term cult uh, next episode, hopefully. But other than that, like, I really can't predict where this is going to go. Also, one more thing. There was not a lot of Grogu in this episode. Very little um, Grogu. I missed him. And I was kind of sad about it. Mm -hmm. There was a moment where I think he was saying this is the way, but it's confusing because I also think that he was signaling through the force that there was TIE fighters coming. So, but I, he's, he's finding his voice is the point. He's been speaking a lot and it's cute. It's cute. It's very cute. I loved after Din left uh, the ship for the transfer, as Bo said it, uh, that Grogu just immediately covers up his entire pod. <laughs> He just yeah. closes the lid. He's like, I will be I in here it. until 
my dad comes back. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to chill here. He's like, I can't, I can't watch this. <laughs> yeah. Also, R5 just being rolled around. He's really going through the journey of his life. <laughs> I'm so, so happy for my anxious king. I love him. R5 and Donkey having a rough go of it. Yeah. Maybe I need a a R5 um, little wind-up toy like I have my Gonky wind-up toy. I think so. I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else we want to say about this episode? Uh, probably we're forgetting a million things, yeah. but it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> this this episode was definitely a good thought exercise. I'm excited to continue having these conversations and see how uh, they're completely flipped on their head in the coming weeks as well, especially, you know, to our larger conversations about these organizations, these people and what they are and aren't doing within them. Um, to your point about the Din and Grogu's uh, Din and Bo staying put, uh, it does feel like a good opportunity as the newcomer for Bo to be like, all right, let's really break down what's going on here. Why are we all like this? <laughs> what do you believe? So we'll see. <laughs> and I think that's important. I agree. That's important. I agree. So we'll see what happens. But I'm, yeah, I'm very excited for next week. I have no idea what's coming next. So I can't wait. But I think that is going to wrap up this week's episode. So thank you guys so much for listening. Again, don't forget our live show at Star Wars Celebration London is going to be April 9th, uh, Easter Sunday at 1 p.m. Room 14 of the Net News Stage. Again, that will be on all of our uh, in the show notes and everything. So uh, please come and uh, join the show if you can, or you know, if we see you around in London, please come and say hi. We would love to meet you and give you um, some little some little sky talkers, fun things. So please come and say hi to us. And yeah, we will be back next week to talk about the next episode of The Mandalorian, as well as our next batch of Bad Batch episodes. And we loved. this current set of Bad Batch episodes that are airing. So I'm really excited about that episode to come out too. So please listen to that. Yeah, the 22nd. Yes, thank you. That's when that comes out. Uh, Next week. So yes, please listen to that as well. And if you're interested to talk more about Star Wars with us, you can find us online uh, on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Crarity and mine is at Caitlin Plusher. We also have our website, our Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, email, all good places to find us. And if you have haven't left us a review yet on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would really love it if you took a couple of seconds to go and do that as it helps other people find our show. You know, and while we're on the topic of reviews and things like that, one of the really big ways that podcasts grow is through word of mouth. The biggest way I would say that podcasts grow is through word of mouth. So if you're listening to this episode right now, we would love it if you would screenshot you listening, share it to your stories, tag us so we can reshare with others too. And it is a great way to help out the show and hopefully have more people join in the conversation with us. And if you're interested in other ways to support our show, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our reward tiers there. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Lindsay, Charlotte, Tim, Jonah, Carol, David, Simon, Tim, Aldersi, Paul, Danny, Megan, Becky, Z, James, Nick, Christina, Rachel, Jessica, Emma, Kara, Allie, Olivia, Justin, Benjamin, Molly, Jose, Nina, Alexa, and Jedediah. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.